there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit, feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to one of our new formats in which we're having the author joining us for the Books with Hooks and integrating it all into one awesome episode. Now, today's guest is Laura Barrow, who is a former teacher and a lover of books. She received her bachelor's degree in music education from Centenary College in northwest Louisiana, where she grew up. She now resides in northeast Texas, just outside Dallas, with her husband, three daughters, and a house full of pets, which is just as we like it. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. We, we're really excited to have you here. For our listeners, we're going to be talking about Laura's debut, Call the Canaries Home, which is just a fabulous, fabulous book. Before we get to that, Carly has a reminder for our listeners. We know that everybody is such loyal fans out there, always listening to us. We would love it if you also rate, review, make sure you actually subscribe to the podcast, do all of those things that help our metrics, which helps us grow and reach new listeners. So please rate, review, subscribe. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, Carly. And besides that, thank you to all of our Kofi supporters. And for those of you who aren't Kofi supporters, please consider supporting the podcast. It is quite an expensive enterprise to run. We try and give you the most amazing content that we possibly can. And your support in that regard would be greatly appreciated. If you want to support us, go to our website, look for the Kofi page, and there is a link there. And remember, if you become a Kofi supporter, you get access to the written critiques that Carly and Cece do every week and that our authors are going to be doing every week and you get a lot more bonus content there as well. Right, so Laura, before we kick off with our first query which we're going to ask Cece to do for us, when you first mailed me to let me know that Call the Canaries Home sold, you mentioned how when you started writing this book, you were doing a whole bunch of things wrong, like starting with the character all by themselves, etc., etc. And you said that as you were listening to the podcast, you were revising based on advice you were hearing us give. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, my original scene had someone driving home by themselves in a car, <laughs> all the wrong things. Um I think I didn't really understand uh, how to show instead of tell. And so that whole first draft was me telling a lot of information. And I think that I was trying to figure out what the story was. I also had Mima's chapters in the book written in epistolary form as a journal entry. So um, after listening to you guys a lot, I kind of eventually felt like that wasn't the best way to go, that it really removed you from the action. So I went back and rewrote all of those chapters. I, I think I rewrote the book. I don't know. I lost count. <laughs> uh, people talk about drafts. I don't know how many drafts there were. So, but yeah. And I think the helpful thing was I would put it away for weeks at a time, sometimes months at a time, and then come back to it with new perspective after having listened to a lot of episodes. So yeah, super helpful. That's an amazing approach. It really does give you the emotional distance from the work, intellectual distance from the work. So excellent advice there. And for our listeners, so what the story is about is three estranged sisters reconnect in their Louisiana hometown to face an unresolved past in a heartfelt novel about family, grief, secrets, and forgiveness. And we will discuss it in a bit more detail shortly. Right. In the meantime, Cece, can you kick us off with the first query letter? Dear Cece, first, I'd like to say I'm a huge fan of the shit no one tells you about writing. I have learned so much from your guests and absolutely adore the books with hooks segment. Thank you for helping aspiring writers to aspire higher. I chose to submit to you because of your self-proclaimed eclectic taste and because you represent mysteries. I'm thrilled to submit for your consideration my debut novel, Dead and Confused, a movie shop mystery. Complete at around 73,000 words, the first in a cozy mystery series set in a video rental store in the year 1977. Dead and Confused contains all the 90s nostalgia of a well-watched episode of Friends, mixed with all the mystery and quirky small-town characters of a Hannah Swenson mystery by Joanna Fluke. It's Halloween in Sequoia Bay, Washington. Jessie Boudon has recently left college, moving back after her grandfather's death to help her grandmother run the family video store, Play It Again, Sam. Jessie is grappling with coming home after experiencing the big wide world of independence and broaden horizons college offers. She's trying to heed the advice from Reality Bites and take pleasure in the details, like a well-matched chunky belt and creepers, a sonic youth concert, 
riding in her best friend's beat-up Datsun and soaring on her bike through a crisp fall day. She even has a new crush, Van Walker, but part of her feels something is missing. When the body of her ex-boyfriend from middle school is discovered murdered the morning after a Halloween party, it looks like Ben is a prime suspect. With the help of her friends, her book club, and the emotional support of her cat, Hitchcock, Jessie starts investigating on her own. Subtlety, however, is not Jessie's strong suit, and soon her efforts catch the attention of the local detective and possibly even the assassin. Can she catch the killer before Ben or herself winds up in jail or even murdered themselves? Dead and Confused will appeal to movie lovers, fans of 90s nostalgia with an alternative lean, love for well-formed LGBTQ plus characters, and anyone looking for light-hearted mystery. When I'm not writing, you can find me working in a local elementary school library, chasing after my two-year-old Agatha, or watching Poker Face with my husband. In the late 90s, you would have found me behind the counter of Film is Truth, an independent video store in Bellingham, Washington, and the inspiration for the setting of Dead and Confused. I've included the first five pages below. Please let me know if you'd like to read the full manuscript. Warmest regards, Nicole Barton. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Can you let us know what the word count is there and then your take on that? This is clocking in at 449 words. So I want to say that this is such a fun hook, right? Like I'm really having a nostalgia moment thinking of video rental stores. Cozy mysteries are so much fun. So I really, really like the premise here. I like the title. I really like the title of the video rental store as well. So this is just adorable. I really, really like it. First question, is this standalone with series potential or is it necessarily series? Because I mean, if you listen to the podcast, you know what I'm about to say. Series are tricky. We don't know if we can sell the second book until the first book is a success. If it can be standalone with series potential, it's going to make your life a little bit easier. So that's a question for you. In terms of comps, I really do think you should go with two comps. Friends is great, but Friends is telling me the vibes, the nostalgia, but it's not its not an actual comp. Like it's just too big. It's a huge TV show. It's, it's a lifestyle at this point. So I would just go with two book comps or maybe like a book and a TV show, but not, not Friends. I really, really like the details in the paragraph that begins with Jesse's grappling. I like knowing about reality bites. I like knowing about the chunky belts and the Sonic Youth concert and the beat up Datsun. But I don't think you need that in the query letter. Like these are awesome details that should be in your pages. And now that I've read your pages, I know they are, but you just don't need them in the query letter. They're taking up space. Tighter is better when it comes to query letters. So I would just remove that. And what I really, really like here, and I am telling you like A plus, is that her motivation to investigate is clear. Too often I get query letters about protagonists who are going on this like detective, amateur detective journey, right? Which is awesome. Such a great hook, but there's no reason for them to do it. Like they're just walking around one day, they get curious and they do it. And it's like, I can't get behind that because that's implausible. There's a great reason here, right? Like her motivation is super clear and the stakes are super clear as well. So this is just really spectacular. And I know from my experience that not everyone can convey that in a query letter so clearly. And you did. So great job. Thank you, Cece. Okay, what was in those opening pages? The protagonist is riding her bike to get to a coffee shop to say hello to her friend Alex. And she has like a near-death experience. A jerk by the name of Tommy almost runs her over. And she's obviously... The first line of the book is, my life didn't flash before my eyes the morning I nearly died. 
Instead, what I saw in my mind's eye was a tattered photograph of my mother's face. We have her clearly being like nearly run over. That's a big deal. And then she gets to the coffee shop and Tommy points out that she has blood on her because obviously she was just in an accident and that's not nice. And Tommy's trying to talk her into going to this party, but she doesn't want to go. And we know it's a costume party. So yeah, that's what happens. Okay. In terms of doing all the heavy lifting that we expect those opening pages to do, how did this one fare? When we read first pages, we're really looking for the delivery of a promise. The query letter makes a promise and the pages are delivering on that promise. And this delivered because she promised me a cozy mystery. She is telling me this is going to make your heart warm, your heart feel warm, but also you're going to be a little bit scared. And yeah, like this is a cozy mystery. It, I think there could be a little bit more tension just because it's me. And I'm always like, let's add more tension, guys. It, I feel about tension like I feel about chocolate. You can always do with more, but it's really great. There are some things that I think you could work on. So for example, they're in their 20s, right? And there's a line that says, a boy I like is going to be there. And I'm wondering, would someone in their 20s say a boy I like? And maybe they would. Maybe that's a part of the character. There's some grammatical errors, like some words should be capitalized, but they're not. There's an apostrophe where it should be plural, a little bit of spelling mistakes. It's just really, you just need to give this a polish. That's not a big deal. You can do that. When it comes to Tommy, Tommy being an antagonistic figure. She does not like Tommy. Tommy nearly runs her over. And when she arrives at the coffee shop, she says, I'm fine, just a little bike accident. And in her head, there's a line, I didn't want to get Alex started on the subject of Tommy. We'd never talk about anything else if I did. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so if this is a mystery, your reader is going to be looking for clues. Is this a clue? Meaning, is there history between Tommy and Alex? Or is it just that they won't talk about anything else because talking about Tommy is just one of those things. He's a person nobody likes. And if it is a clue, I would just go a little bit deeper with the specificity. Something like the last time we talked about Tommy, Alex was whatever for two days, you know, whatever the reaction that Tommy has on Alex. So I just think that a few of these mentions could be a little bit more specific. So to up the tension, because this is a mystery, but great job. I really enjoyed this. Thank you, Cece. Going to Laura's book now. So Laura, in terms of the premise of the book, we have Savannah was four years old when her twin sister Georgia went missing from their small Louisiana town, fracturing their family. Then 28 years later, she convinces her older sisters to head back into the past to look for this time capsule that they buried. And then sifting through the artifacts, they come across a photograph taken on the day Georgia disappeared and spot a familiar woman lingering in the background. Dun, dun, dun. So the book is about trying to find these answers. Can you tell us how you pitched this in your query letter? How did you position this book to the agent that you ended up signing with? Because this book is like part mystery, part woman's fiction, not that easy to define. So in your mind, how did you approach that? So I guess at the end of the day, I think the book is really about family. <laughs> And I think we can all really relate to how complicated and messy families are. So that's really kind of the big picture message that I wanted to get across. I have three sisters and I have three daughters. And so I really felt like I had a pretty good window into those messy, complicated sister relationships. Like you love them, you hate them, you can't live without them. <laughs> so while the mystery is kind of the backdrop and like the overarching question, I really wanted the story to be about how these sisters kind of find their way back to each other. Yeah, so that was kind of how I pitched it. So more as a family saga, like what were the comps that you used? I comped Christy Woodson Harvey. I just said that my 
my novel, I felt like really was had similar tone to her novels. And the other one was J.K. Delantonia's The Chicken Sisters. I felt like that was a pretty good comp with the matriarchal figure and how she's a hoarder. She kind of had some similarities to Mima. So yeah, I used that one too. Yeah, Mima was an awesome, awesome character. Just following on from Cece's query letter. So in terms of this kind of book, you want to plant a lot of curiosity seeds. You want the reader straight out the gate to have a ton of questions that they keep turning pages to figure out later. And it was interesting to me that you said that your first drafts were more just telling. Did you find that in those earlier drafts you gave away too much and then later you had to take things out in terms of keeping the reader curious? How did you approach that in the way you did? Because this book was such a page turner, so compelling and really ambitious for a debut novel. Yeah, I think if I if I could do it again, I probably, I don't know if I would have done four different POVs after hearing you guys say that's really, <laughs> really ambitious to, to do for your first one. But since I had already chosen it, that's the way that I went. I think you're so right that readers want to be curious the whole time. And I think my first original draft, I started with the scene of them unearthing this uh, time capsule. And it's kind of a high intensity moment where their lives might be in danger and it's it's kind of fast paced. But I, I changed that and I started somewhere different because I think I kind of had this misunderstanding that the reader wants to be like thrown right into the middle of the action into like the scariest moment. And I think what they really want is to just be curious the whole time and have those curiosity seeds. And they really just want, or at least I want when I'm reading to be able to form my own hypotheses along the way. And then I'm reading to find out if I'm right. But I think the tricky thing about being an author is that the reader doesn't actually want to be right. (laughs) You know, they want to be surprised. And I think that if they're not surprised, then you're not really doing your job. So I hope that that's something that I'm, I managed to do in this book. And I think I'm getting a little bit better at it as I go into my second novel. I love what you said there about thinking the reader wants to be thrown into the scariest moment. So what Laura did was she gave us a prologue, everyone, a prologue, but a brilliant prologue that worked incredibly well, putting us into a very emotional moment where there's a lot going on and there's a lot of change happening, but not a scary moment, but there were a lot of curiosity seeds there that really, really worked. So for those of you considering prologues, that's something to keep in mind. Okay, Laura, let's go to your query letter. Will you read it for us, please? Sure. Okay. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, I never cease to have an aha moment that sends me back to my computer after listening to your podcast. Please find the first five pages of my 70,000 word literary dystopian manuscript, Unmothered, for consideration. Unmothered is the braided story of Sylvia, Edith, and Tallulah told in dual timelines before and 20 years after a catastrophic event known as the wave. Sylvia is a modern-day midwife in crisis. She is at risk of losing everything in the wake of attending a near-fatal birth. Sylvia defies the conventions of being a wife, a professional, and a mother by practicing a clandestine form of midwifery and having an extramarital affair. In the collapse of everything she once was, she finds what she truly needs. 20 years after the wave, Tallulah is the first woman who has been able to carry a baby. As her belly grows, so does her community's desire to control her. After recognizing just how far they will go to confine her, she sets off in search of other survivors, a rumored medicine woman and an outsider named Boone who will take her there. Edith is an elder and healer from a group of female survivors of the wave. She is pained by emerging memories of the past and early stages of dementia. Lost during a foraging trip, she struggles to find her way back home and meets a young woman. 
These stories collide when identities are revealed and the plot for reproductive control threatens surviving women's freedom. Unmothered is for readers of the book of the unnamed Midwife by Meg Ellison and Future Home of the Living God by Louise Erdrich. Wayward by Amelia Hart captures similar themes of female resilience. I am a former midwife, family therapist, mother of two, and soon-to-be farmer. My writing has appeared in Yummy Mummy Club. I have been accepted three years in a row to the Yale Summer Writers Workshop and have worked with Sarah Darrow-Littman, Latanya McQueen, and will work with Jacqueline Bichard in the alumni program this year. I have an additional YA manuscript I'll be querying to agents in the spring. My last great adventure was hiking to Everest Base Camp at age 40. I would love publishing my books to be my next. Thank you for your time. Sincerely, Amy Kelly. Thank you, Laura. Just a shout out to Jacqueline Mitchard, who we absolutely love on the show. Hi, Jacqueline. Right. So before we go into your take on this, something that I noticed is that the comps came sort of right at the end and Carly and Cece like to see them up front. We do just want to say as part of a disclaimer on the show that Carly and Cece's preferences are very subjective. There are other agents out there who like it a very different way. We've seen them say so on Twitter, etc. So remember that everything we say to you is subjective advice and there are many different ways to do it. Okay, so Laura, what was your take on the query letter? Do you have a word count for us? Yeah, so this one comes in at 390 words, which I think is a pretty good length. I love the title. I think it's short and punchy. I'm a big fan of one word titles. I would just make sure that it's communicating what you want it to say about the themes in this book, because I was wondering who the unmothered are. Based on the prologue, it seems like the issues that the women have are that they they aren't able to mother, not that they're lacking mothers. So just something to think about going forward. So then we get the first plot paragraph, which I found a little bit confusing and Here's why. We're told we're going to get dual timelines, and then we meet Sylvia, and we're told that Sylvia is a modern-day midwife. So my question is, does modern-day mean like now, or does it mean after the wave? My first thought was that it meant now in our present day, but then later in the paragraph, we learn that she practices this clandestine form of midwifery. And because it's clandestine, that, that kind of makes me think that maybe she's living after the wave. Maybe that was just me. So I just wanted a little bit more clarity on where we are in time. Honestly, I think that you could get rid of the sentence, Sylvia is a modern day midwife in crisis, and just start with Sylvia defies conventions of being a wife, a professional, and a mother, and just add a little tag that says, like, before the wave and let us know where we are. I was a little bit confused about what her actual profession was. Is she a healthcare provider who's practicing midwifery kind of on the side? Or is she in a field that's completely unrelated to midwifery? Because we just, we just see that she's a professional. So I wanted a little bit more clarity there on on what her day job is and why this midwifery has to be secretive, because it does kind of give it like a little bit of a dystopian feel already if we're pre-wave. We learned that she's at risk of losing everything, which felt a little bit vague to me. I kind of wanted to know what what she stood to lose. Was it like her family, her the respect of the town, her job? Then we have a second paragraph where we meet Tallulah, and Tallulah is the first woman since the wave happened that's able to carry a baby. She meets a couple of other survivors. We're told they're going to take her somewhere. And I really wanted to know where. I wanted to know where they were going. If it was like a city or like an underground bunker. I wanted to know what was waiting for them there and where they were going. Then we meet Edith, who is presumably our third character here. And she's lost on this foraging trip and meets a young woman. I think you could probably say in the query who the young woman is, since there are three women here in this query. I'm assuming it's Tallulah, but, but we don't know that yet. 
And then the last sentence of the plot paragraph says, these stories collide when identities are revealed and the plot for reproductive control threatens surviving women's freedom. So I wanted to know what the plot for reproductive control was and how it was threatening them. So I, I, I just wanted to know who the antagonist is. Is it the government? Is it her neighbors? And how is she at risk? Are they going to imprison her or take her baby? I, I just wanted a little bit more information around what the plot is. Comps come next. And like you say, I put mine at the beginning because that was that was the advice that I got and that worked well for me. Uh, the bio was great. I didn't have any comments there. It sounds like you're doing all the right things and you take your writing really seriously. So great job. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. 
We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Thank you, Laura. Before we move on to the pages, Carly and Cece, do you have anything you'd like to add? I will just echo that I had the same dual timeline thought that Laura did, I was like, wait, is it modern day today? Is it modern day after the wave, before the wave? It's a really confusing sentence. And I was trying to fix it. But then Laura was like, just remove that sentence. So I read it again as she was talking. Yes, you should remove that sentence. That is a perfect fix. I feel like I just got a gold star or something. That's so exciting. <laughs> I was going to say that we, I've talked about this in the podcast before, but we are starting to see a lot of books that are kind of coming to us or coming out of the marketplace about motherhood or dystopian views about motherhood based on a lot of political things that are going on. So as always, the hook has to be really exciting to kind of transcend everything else that's out there in the marketplace. I do think this is incredibly interesting. So I would think this would be something that would catch people's eye. Thank you, Carly. Okay, Laura, what was in those opening pages in terms of what's happening? The first thing we get is a prologue. And I know that that's debatable, but I can't call anyone else out for it because I had a prologue in my novel. And in this case, personally, I think it makes sense because the wave doesn't really fit anywhere else in the timeline. And it is the thing that kind of bifurcates this novel into like the before and after. So we're given the heading, a survivor's account of the wave, but we don't know yet whose point of view we're in. I'm guessing it's probably Edith's, but we don't have that information yet. So in the prologue, the protagonist goes out to feed her chickens who are standing atop their coop, which kind of sets off some initial alarm bells in her head. She begins fertilizing her garden, and then it's then that she notices this giant wave on the horizon, and she freezes. And when she's finally able to think clearly again, she remembers that her son is playing at the edge of the yard. So she runs over to him, hoping that he's going to run with her. And through internal thought, we learn that he's autistic, so at times he struggles to communicate. Um, And she's really relieved when he takes her hand. But just as they're about to try and make a run for it, they're caught in this giant wave and they're they're fighting their way through the currents and debris. And that's when she feels her son let go of her hand. So it was was really well written and engaging. I really enjoyed reading this prologue. Then we get a couple pages of Sylvia's life before the wave. We get a timestamp of 2003 and the location is uh, the West Coast of Canada. We learn that Sylvia is a midwife who is stirred awake by her pager in the middle of the night. Her husband is asleep next to her, and she places this phone call to her client's husband, who is frantic because he believes that his wife is in active labor. And then through internal thought, we learn that Sylvia has been a midwife since she was a teenager. And while she used to love it, it doesn't really excite her in the way that it used to. After she assesses that the patient isn't in any immediate danger, she tells him she'll be there soon, and she starts to get ready. She makes the drive over, and when she arrives, a woman, presumably a family member of her client, answers the door. So... Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. It sounds like you approved of the prologue. Tell us a bit about that and your take on the pages. Okay. So like I said, really enjoy the prologue. There were a couple of grammatical things that I'll point out just because these are really common ones that tend to show up a lot for me in my own writing. And when I beta read for other people, the first happens in the second sentence and the sentence reads slogging through the heavy rainforest mud and my yellow boots to fill their water and food towers. I froze. So I would rework the sentence because the way that it's written makes it seem as if the slogging and the freezing are happening at the same time. And we know that that's that's not what she meant. 
So I would, I would just reword that to be something like I slog through the mud, then froze. The second little grammatical concern happens further down the page. And the sentence reads, without thinking the bucket was on the ground and I was running. So the way that it's written right now makes it seem as if the bucket is the one doing the thinking. And we know that's not what the author intended. So I would just rework that sentence. But overall, I did feel like there was a lot of great interiority in the prologue. There was also some really beautiful imagery. I love the, the way that the author describes the chickens as, quote, six plump sacks of anticipation, eyes darting, as if they themselves were surprised at how they had arrived atop their rusty metal roof. So that felt very literary to me, and I think this is supposed to be literary, so great job there. So that was the prologue. Then we get a couple pages of Sylvia, who has been a practicing midwife since she was a teenager. And for me, this this could have just been me, but I was a, that was a little bit of a credibility concern for me because I've never heard of a teenage midwife and I have a teenager <laughs> and she's they're generally pretty disgusted by anything having to do with childbirth. <laughs> so I kind of wanted a little bit more information about why she was doing this at such an early age, because that fact alone does kind of make it feel dystopian already. So I just kind of wanted to know why why she was doing this. So at such an early age. And maybe that information should come in the query. I'm not sure. I still I still want to know if this midwife thing is just a side gig and she has a different profession because I'm still struggling with that word clandestine in the query and wondering why, why it has to be secret. So Sylvia's on the phone with her client's husband. She's asking him if there's been any bloody show, which reminds her of her first date with her now husband. And she remembers that they were eating dinner at a restaurant when she asked him, or she asked this very same question to a client over the phone. And I'll just read this sentence. Her question was asked so loudly, people from two tables away had left their dinners. So there are two things here. The first is that the sentence is passive. And I know that this is a really small thing and it's just my personal preference, but I would use the active voice if at all possible. And then we're told that the other customers had left their dinners. And again, that was just a little bit of a credibility concern for me because it takes a lot for me to stop eating something that I paid for and that I'm enjoying. <laughs> and I just felt like a phrase that concerned people wouldn't be enough to get someone to stop eating. So maybe maybe they just chewed slower or maybe they just shot her a dirty look. I don't know, but I didn't think that they would stop eating. Then she kind of slips out of this memory back to the present with this sentence. After assessing that the woman's waters hadn't broken and she wasn't having any bloody show, she promised to be at their house in less than an hour. But because she's asking the same question in the memory as she's asking in the present, I think that you need like an action tag here to pull the reader back into the present moment because the memory is so similar to what's happening now that I, I just needed a little bit more grounding in the moment. And then my last note was after she kind of drives, she drives over to her client's home and someone answers the door. And for me, this was a sequencing issue. So I think the best way to illustrate this is to just read these few sentences here. A woman abruptly opened the door, eyes wide in panic, mouth pulled into a tout line across her face. Thrumming with so much anxiety, she might levitate. Sylvia took a deep breath in. Thank God you're here. She's in so much pain. I really think you need to tell them to go to the hospital, she said, chewing her thumbnail as she spoke and twisting her brittle gray hair with the other. Immediately, Sylvia knew who she was. So this is an area where I think the sequencing needs to be reordered. Um, because if someone answers the door and you recognize them, you recognize them right away. And so I think you just need to reorder that so that she recognizes her. Even if she doesn't know the woman's name, she's going to say, oh, I recognize this as a family member of my client. So those were just my thoughts. And those are all really simple fixes. But I really enjoyed reading the sample. I would love to know where it goes. And I actually have a lot of questions about the wave and why, <laughs> why it made this generation of sterile people. So I want to know so much more. So Thanks, Amy, for giving me the opportunity to uh, critique your work. 
Awesome, Laura. Thank you so much. So what you mentioned there in terms of an action beat is something that I want to point out in terms of your work, Laura. So for our listeners who subscribe to our newsletter, if you don't, definitely get on that. A few newsletters ago, I did a bit of an article on action beats versus dialogue tags and how action beats elevator work can tell you more about characterization and setting, etc. And I want to read a few to you from Laura's book that are absolutely brilliant. So Thought you girls might be hungry after your drive, Mima said, motioning for the three of us to take a seat as she reached for a stack of paper plates. Right, so it's not just Mima said. We've got gestures, we've got motion in this that actually gives us, as the reader, something to imagine. Then there's something else. It looks amazing, I forced myself to say, pulling out a chair next to Savannah. Sue Ellen grimaced as she reluctantly lowered her salt herself into a seat across from us. Again, what we have here is positioning linked to dialogue. The reader needs to see the scene the way the writer intended it. And in this kind of way, we have dialogue linked to the characters positioning themselves in this room so that the reader can imagine how it's playing out. Further down on the page, Bessie's not a pet, Mima said, as if she were offended on behalf of the pig. She earns her keep around here, tills the soil better than I can with my arthritis and keeps the varmints away too. And she plucked a tomato from a basket on the table and admired it. I compost her droppings for fertilizer. She's more useful than most people I've met, she said, bending over to give Bessie a pat between her pointy ears. Smells better too. Bessie grunted an agreement. Perfect, I said, throwing a side eye to Bessie, living in a literal pigsty now. Couldn't go with a cat or a dog, bird maybe? Where did you even find her? So have a look at how well Laura has linked dialogue to the action beats. She's included dialogue tags there, but how much more elevated the work is because we've got so much to imagine. We can see how the movement of the scene is flowing threaded into the dialogue. Too many emerging writers see dialogue as one thing and then action as something completely different. So we get dialogue, action, dialogue, action, but this is such a wonderful braided approach to writing and something that I really commend you on, Laura. Something as well that I want to ask about, and you mentioned it yourself, is the multiple POVs. So we've got all of the sisters in first person. We have Mima in the third person. We have time jumps all over the place. It's We go backwards and forwards in time, etc., etc. And as you said, maybe if you knew better, you wouldn't have done it this way because I don't think emerging writers realize how difficult it is to pull it off, but you did it. So can you give us a bit of an idea of how you went about differentiating the sisters' voices in the first person and why you chose first person for them as opposed to third person for Mima? Sure. Yeah, I think that the tricky thing about first person is that you are restricted to a vocabulary that that character would use. So I'm always frustrated when I'm reading something in first person and the character maybe doesn't have a college education or and they're using really big words or like words that I don't think that they would use. So in this case, each one of the sisters kind of has a different varying levels of education. And so I kept that in mind as I was writing in their voice. And also for Mima, I chose third person because we do go back in time and we kind of get her story from the beginning. I really wanted readers to understand why she is the way she is, because I think we're all kind of 
the result of our life's experiences. And I wanted her to be a little bit unlikable, but not that unlikable. I wanted people to empathize with her and to really understand why she is the way she is. I had one beta reader say that they really didn't like her character. (laughs) And so I really tried to keep that in mind and and went back and added a lot more backstory in for her because yeah, you know, I want people to like my main character. So I love Mima. She's a bit of a martyr. She makes people feel guilty. She knows how to push everyone's buttons. We all know somebody like Mima. But what you said there is so true because remember for our listeners, if Laura had written Mima in the first person, the first person narrator does not understand that they are so-called unlikable. They are not going to tell the readers all this contextual things about themselves, which they themselves aren't even aware of. So that's something that Laura was able to do in the third person, because Laura, as the narrator of Mima's story, knows more about Mima than Mima knows about herself in terms of self-actualization in terms of what she's aware of etc so that's always a really really good reason to choose the third person as opposed to the first person so that was really excellently done there Laura right so let's go to Carly's query letter Carly will you read that for us please Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, I'm an avid listener to the podcast, Kofi subscriber, and promoter of the podcast and my writing friends. Thank you for the wisdom you share with writers like me. I am also grateful to bookseller Emily Sommer for her suggestions for comps for my novel. I am seeking representation for my women's fiction, If You See Something, complete at 85,000 words with three POV characters. It can be described as El Casamano's Finley Donovan is killing it with the suspense and location of Tim Johnson's Descent. It's present-day April in Colorado ski country when Jane Dawson's world crashes. Her ex-husband appears in her kitchen unexpectedly to entice their 16-year-old son to live with him in New Zealand. As Jane resists giving permission, she ponders what her life would be without her son and realizes she has used him to hide from a social life. As an environmentalist, she throws herself into fighting the local ski resort's plan to expand. Her efforts bring her to the attention of undercover FBI agent George McHenry in Summit County investigating eco-terrorist threats. Jane's quirky behavior makes her a person of interest. Trying to find her own social life while she struggles with her parental decision, Jane throws herself at a handsome new customer at the coffee shop where she works. Her comical efforts to flirt don't work. John Matsura has arrived in Summit County with a plan to avenge his grandparents' World War II internments and the humiliation he has experienced. The reader follows his preparations to deliver poison into Denver's water system. McHenry pursues Jane, she pursues Matsura, and all the while noticing details that escape others. The story conveys the importance of paying attention in our everyday lives. A possible sequel is cued. I'm a clinical social worker and certified teacher of the Enneagram, an ancient psychology of personality used by many writers to bring depth to their characters. I'm a hiker, seer, scuba diver, and cyclist, activities all found in my novel. When I'm not writing, reading, volunteering for the Red Cross, traveling, or hiking, I'm hanging out with my husband, entertaining granddaughters, and enjoying good wine. I am a member of the Writers Guild, Women's Fiction Writers of America, and have attended the Iowa Summer Writing Festival. I receive wonderful support from my critique group, the West Des Moines Writers, my sister in crime chapter, my writing mentor, award-winning author, Sandra Schofield. If you see something, it's my debut novel. You can find more about me at my website, ellenjordanauthor.com. I look forward to your feedback. Best regards. Jan Jordan, writing as Ellen Jordan. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, word count and your take on that. All right. This one was 427 words, and Jan wrote that down for me. So thank you. So starting from the top here, 
I love that you called into our hotline to get to get these comps. I definitely think the Finley Donovan is killing it is a great comp. However, both of these comps are very like crime mystery thriller, which again, I do think our bookseller definitely nailed it. But then you're pitching it as women's fiction. So then I'm like, is this women's fiction or is it not? Is it women's fiction suspense? You know what I mean? Like we're, we're kind of dancing around some themes and some terms that overlapped and intersect. So I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm just saying that there could be a potential for you to clarify a little bit that this potentially is more suspenseful than straight women's fiction. I think there's an opportunity there for that. I don't think you need to tell us it's present day. I think we kind of assume things are present day, unless it's obviously historical. So I think you can save yourself a couple bits of word count there. It did feel like a pretty technical query to me in the sense that it felt more synopsis-like than not synopsis-like. We are kind of going through a lot of facts. It didn't flow to me as much as I would hope that it would. So that's something that, that stood out to me. I'm kind of curious about a few things here. So number one, she's an environmentalist. So I was kind of assuming like through her career, she was an environmentalist. This sounds more like this is a passion of hers, a hobby of hers, because she works at the coffee shop or maybe she has two jobs. I just wasn't sure whether it was academically she's an environmentalist for her career, whether it's a passion. I think I would just like to know the level of that because it's fine either way I guess I was just a bit confused and then she had a job at a coffee shop which to me there's a lot of things that come up and are going to come up in this book when we think about environmentalism capitalism the environment and so much that goes on in a resort town when we're balancing classism right like all these other things so I would just like a little bit of a better understanding I think about how she fits into this world or how she imagines that she fits into this world the last thing I think that I'll touch on in terms of the body paragraphs are our John Matsura character so he has, is coming to avenge his grandparents' World War II internments, humiliation he has experienced. So I I do not know if you have any family history to this topic or any kind of connection other than research. I would just probably like to know what level of research that you had done around this topic. It just, I don't want it to be a throwaway line because it doesn't deserve to be a throwaway line. I'm not saying that you are, but there's an opportunity for this to appear like a throwaway line. And so I really just want to figure out how we can elevate that part of the story and show that you've done your research. That would be quite important to me because he is the enemy kind of, of the antagonist of this novel. So I just have a lot of questions about that positioning and, and how, we're, how we're portraying John's character. Lastly, and this is one of the things that makes me think this is a bit more synopsis-like. We have a small paragraph that says, McHenry pursues Jane, she pursues Matsura. I love that. It, you know, it's like this person's chasing this person, this person's chasing... But then we end with a theme. The story conveys the importance of paying attention in our everyday lives. I'm like, is that really the theme we're going for here? Because I want to talk about classism, environmentalism, and, you know, what's going on in these resort... Like, this is... That's what I felt like we were building to. I didn't think we were like trying to build to like meditation. I didn't really think that's what we were aiming for. Like to me, the energy just kind of like went down a little bit. And obviously possible sequel is cued. As you guys know from listening to me, I always say, you know, it always depends on the first book, right? The first book has to sing here. So yeah, I feel like there's a lot of work to do here. This is incredibly interesting if it's hitting on the things that I think it's hitting on. But I do think there's quite a bit of work to do here. Thank you, Carly. If this writer is anything like me, they don't know what the hell they're writing until someone else <laughs> interprets it for them. So I feel your pain, listeners. I feel your pain. Right. Okay. What was in those opening pages? Okay. So we meet our main character, Jane Dawson. It is the middle of the night. She is early morning. She's having a nightmare. She's waking up from her nightmare. Her dog is beside her and she's kind of narrating it to her dog. 
She gets up, she checks on her son. He is very tired from snowboarding. Um, and she kind of starts her day. We know that she bikes to work or kind of is going for a bike ride on her way to work or before work. She's kind of climbing a, a hill in her mountain bike. She gets to the top of the hill and then she sees big trucks, big construction trucks bringing in huge, uh, huge pieces of equipment that she's like, damn it, they're doing the, you know, this, this big construction work. And so we get, we start to get into all of the tensions of everything going on in the community. Um, we also find out that her son potentially wants to make it to the Olympics. So he's been training quite hard. Um, and, and that's kind of where we end. She is kind of coming down the mountain, trying to chase these big trucks. Um, and then somebody kind of tries to run her off the road a little bit. We're not sure if it's intentional or not intentional because she's on her bike as she makes her way into town. And that's where we end. Thank you, Colleen. Okay, what was your take on that? Did the author start in the right place? Well, um, <laughs> I don't think we start in the right place. You know, if we are going to do something that is one of those potentially a do not do thing, which is wake you up in the morning, nightmares, you know, these types of things, how we start our day, the more mundane or things that are trying to be pushed as more elevated um, than they potentially are, it has to be subversive, right? And so I'm not really seeing where the subversive element is here. I mean, one of the things I wasn't sure about is, you know, this is mentioned in the query and it's open in the opening, mentioned in the opening lines. It says, worst case scenarios had haunted Jane Dawson her entire life. She noticed things that seemed out of place, potential dangers lurking nearby, situations that could easily go wrong. She viewed this as her superpower. Not everyone agreed. Like, to me, this just feels like anxiety, <laughs> like, you know, a very, like, intense form of anxiety. And then I'm like, was it supposed to be supernatural? It's like she's saying it's not her, not supernatural. So I guess I'm trying to figure out if exactly how we're portraying this level of anxiety and paying attention. I just have a lot of questions about this character. And also it opens in past tense as worst case scenarios had daunted Jane Dawson her entire life. And so to me, like, wouldn't that be have because like, she's still living her life? Again, I'm not the writer here. But um, but that felt like, I don't know, I stumbled over that a little bit. I don't know, I just feel like present tense for some reason would, would work better. So the thing about the nightmare that doesn't work for me, this is kind of when it's the exact same as when prologues don't work for me. It's that I have no idea who this character is, what their struggles are, and I have no connection to this character or their feelings. And so when I'm like, I'm told that there's somebody laying in their bed having a nightmare, I'm like, okay, I don't know, I just have no emotional connection to it, because I don't know why they're having a nightmare. Did something actually really traumatic happen to them? And therefore, if I had known that information, I would feel very invested in this nightmare. But again, when this happens in, in paragraph two, I just, I really just feel very emotionless towards it. And that's never my goal is that I do want to feel connected to it. So I, I just wish it was a little bit more subversive if we're going to do this, because if we're not, I really don't think it potentially is the right place to start. If we're going to keep this frame, you know, the series of events in this framing, I would start with her on her way up the mountain on her mountain bike. She's talking about her switchbacks and really observing everything that's going on. She's like replaying conversations in her head with her son. And, and then she gets to the top of the mountain and sees these big trucks coming in. Like to me, if we're going to stick with this, just cut the cut the sleeping and starting the day stuff. Um, I really like the visual, like the, the part of the book where we are really in nature, I really loved. And I think that came through really clearly in the query letter as well, that this person is very well connected to nature. I think that that part's super interesting. I think the fact that, you know, the sun's trying to make it to the Olympics, also super interesting. Um, there's a lot of really great lines, you know, at the top of the, when, when this character is at the top of the mountain looking down, 
before she sees the the big truck, she says, cars snailed in an orderly manner across the reservoir dam. And I'm like, that's exactly what cars would look like when you're at the top of the mountain, you know, just like snailing across. I don't know. I just love that. Um, there are a lot of things that, that really, really, really worked here. And I think that this author is best when they're in nature. And so I really, I want to start with what this author is best at. And I think that would be the greatest part to start. I think we're starting to build to it because we're also getting this tension in the community. As I said, the classism, the environmental angle. So I don't think, I don't think we should start with that first page. Thank you, Carly. As you were saying that, I had the weirdest flashback to my nightmare last night. I don't normally talk about my dreams, but this was a mashup of Sex in the City and Harry Potter. And let me tell you, seeing Samantha Jones at Hogwarts was pretty damn scary. That's all I'm going to say. Right. Before we end today's episode, Laura, you have elevated yourself from the query trenches, and that is where so many of our listeners currently are. They're in that churning vortex of rejection and just trying to slog their way through. And so as somebody who got out of those query trenches and who is now being published, is there any advice, any words of wisdom that you would like to leave our listeners with in terms of anything you learned while querying or, or any words of encouragement you would like to give them? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'll say two things. The first is um, to just embrace revision and um, the delete key is your friend. <laughs> I think this happened on both my novel that's coming out in July and the work that I'm working on right now, I ended up um, kind of hitting a wall at some point in both of those books and ended up um, throwing out a good chunk of it. Um, and Call the Canaries Home, I actually had a completely different ending. And as I was trying to resolve some plot holes, I ended up throwing out that ending and just rewriting my way to the end. It's really scary to do, but once I made the decision, um, I think the novel was just so much better for it and my editor really loved it. And um, But it was scary in that moment. So I would just say, don't be afraid to change it because it's, it's not gonna be the same thing that you started writing in the beginning. I had probably two different endings and like two different endings and a bunch of stuff changed in the middle. So, um, so don't be afraid of revision. And then the second thing is just kind of not letting your anxiety keep you from doing the thing you're most passionate about. Because for me, I don't know, as you were talking about anxiety in that query letter, Carly, I was thinking, that's my life. I am constantly thinking of all the things that could go wrong, <laughs> even today in this podcast. You know, what if my headphones don't work? Um, so I would just say, don't be afraid because if you don't do this now, you're going to get to the end of your life and regret and wish that you had. So yeah, don't let your anxiety keep you from doing the things that you're most passionate about. Thank you, Laura. I actually want to throw it back to Cece. Cece, what is your favorite quote about anxiety and ambition? It is my grandmother's line that she told me my whole life and the only thing that curbs my anxiety. Ambition over anxiety. Anxiety is real. You can feel it. You will feel it. That's okay. You will also feel many other things, including ambition. Only one of these things can take the driver's seat. So ambition over anxiety. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. 
To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.